Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Previously on the Humble Hoof Podcast. Hi, my name is uh, Scott Ciesler. I'm the founder and lead nutritionist with Mad Barn Inc., nutrition company located in Ontario, Canada. Try to impress my people like we're doing this really for you and the horse. Because honestly, I'll tell you, like, there's a lot of easier ways to make money than selling horse manure. Yeah. Last episode, Scott Ciesler and I chatted about nutrition and its effect on the hoof. After talking about iron, hay testing, mineral balancing, and reading labels, I realized there was so much more I wanted to talk about. We decided to record another episode and get into some of the topics we missed out on in the first one. If you missed the first episode with Scott, check out episode number 20, Mad About Hooves. In this episode, Scott and I were able to get into some of the myths in the nutrition world I hear from so many, like, my horse needs grain because he's in work, or alfalfa is totally safe for metabolic horses because it's low in sugar and starch. We also chatted a bit about how gut health can affect the feet. I don't know if we wanted to start talking a little bit about how you approach the dietary needs of equine athletes, because that's sort of what we left off on on the last phone call and kind of have some of that on the end of that episode. And, you know, I obviously come across, like I said, a lot of clients who say that they can't cut the grain, even though I'm seeing issues in the feet that I think would benefit from having lower sugar and starch. I have those clients that say they can't cut the grain because their horses are in heavy work. And I didn't know if you had any baseline diet that you tell people to feed their harder working horses. I mean, there's tons of options when it comes to diets, right? There's a lot of ingredients out there you can use. We seem to, in the horse industry, be really stuck in this. I have, you know, horse feed grain, like commercial horse feeds, and the hay is just this side thing we feed the horse to keep them busy, especially with the performance horses. If My base diet is, okay, let's evaluate the hay, so hay testing. And we talked about this on the last episode where sometimes it can be difficult because it's like week over week it changes. So they're like, well, there's no point in testing. And the rebuttal of that, too, is, well, there is a point in testing because at least you can kind of get a, a general idea by looking at the hay, the test results that associate with that hay. And when we're talking performance horses, it really is about the protein and energy that's in the hay versus when maybe we're talking about metabolic horses, we're more, more focused on the mineral profile and obviously the sugars and whatnot in the hay. But for a performance horse, having high sugars isn't really a, an issue because they're going to use it. You start with, you try to get them to this idea of, yes, let's test some hay, like even if it's four or five times a year, and we now have this range of hay that you're getting in, and this is the base of our program, and we know how much energy this hay is going to provide. And here's the big thing when you talk about a base program for feeding performance horses, based on feeding enough forage, because a lot of times I find that they're just, they're simply not feeding enough, right? They're they're feeding a, a lot of grain and not nearly enough forages. So, I mean, we use hay as an example, but forages could be pasture, hay, hay being grass, alpha, blended alfalfa, whatever makes up that forage portion. But basically, you want this horse eating for the majority of the day, and then we want to match the forage as best we can to the output uh, in terms of energy. And then it just becomes math after that, really. So if we can say, okay, let's 
maximize our forage intake for this horse as much as you can possibly get into that horse, I guess. And then you start adding on top of that the uh, extra ingredients that you need. We know this is how much energy it's going to drive for it and then derive from the hay. And then, yes, we may have to add increased caloric density, but that doesn't mean necessarily a commercial horse feed. Caloric density can be increased by adding people, soy hulls, distillers grains, oil being a big one, like uh, vegetable oil source is two and a half times more energetically dense than a grain is. That's usually, honestly, where I start is maximize the forage, figure out if we need to put some extra energy in there, what ingredients fit with the client, uh, the geographic area they're in, and just accept it. So you come back to kind of, I guess, the client. What are they willing to accept as this idea to move away from pounding all this grain to the horse? And then we kind of work from there. So it's a lot of times when you're doing diets for people, for horses, you, you have to consider as much the person you're dealing with, uh, what they're going to accept and slowly kind of move. But Right. Yeah. So obviously you're saying the forage first, but when you're adding things on top of that, are there things, you know, I'm always thinking of it in terms of what's going to be safe for their feet, but you were saying that you don't worry as much about that for the athletes because they're going to be utilizing those sugars and starches as they're working. So if the horse had metabolic concerns, would you have a different, uh, like different additional things to add? Or is it, are the ones you listed all fine, you think, for for feet in general? Well, okay, so this brings into context, I guess, a few different things. One is like what we call the athletic horse or the level of work they're doing uh, because the athletic horse does is a huge range over um, how much work they're doing all the way up to, you know, your high-performance racehorse. I can lump in the, you know, the 100-mile endurance horse in there. Uh, Then you kind of start working down on the amount of work they're doing. And, again, I'm going to run off on a tangent here. This is where, like, heart rate monitors. It would be a huge benefit kind of balancing your diet to the workload because if you're utilizing heart rate monitors, you you can actually kind of assess the total caloric uh, expenditure of the horse to then match the diet to it. So the sugars and starches, I mean, yeah, for sure we want to limit them. Like, I think you feed a high-performance horse similar to the way you feed an IR horse. You want to limit the amount of sugar and starch that you're feeding, but a little bit's okay. Like, uh, even with um, Dr. Callen's recommendations with an IR horse, you know, it's okay to add oats with an insulin-resistant horse. Just make sure it's after they've worked, right? Like, again, some of this is timing because the the glucose the load that comes on from feeding a little bit of oats if it's way right after, within a couple hours after they work, you're just going to utilize it right away. So you don't have to be concerned about it being too much. So get, the diet becomes very specific yet yeah, to the horse's needs. But, but the, at the end of the day, you go all the way back to the metabolic horse and you're like, this is the way we should feed them. And it's essentially, you know, forage fiber and limit the sugars and starches. And that's the way, all the way up to a very high performance horse. But your tolerance for a little bit of sugar and starch in the high performance horse is just higher. But yeah. I think you got to put that in context, though. Like, comparatively, what the industry's doing in feeding, where we're talking like 10 to 15% sugars as a total percent of the dry matter, 20 to 30% starch, that's far, far too high. To so put this in context, you go back to like glycogen loading in human athletes, and you know, you eat the big pasta dinner the night before a big event to load up glycogen. Well, they've tried that in horses and it doesn't work. 
And so that really gives you a clue to that they, they're not built to take this high load of sugar and starch. You know, this is a podcast and people, I'm sure, listen in and they're, they're hoping to be able to learn, obviously, how to balance a diet. But I mean, that, that just takes years and years of education and schooling and experience to kind of know where, you know, where to fit what diet where. And it's really hard to encapsulate in a nutshell, but the the essence of any diet should be foraged, you know, add some more soluble fiber that's more readily digestible, it has a higher energy content, and then add some fat to the diet if you need more calories past that. And then there's a place for a bit of starch, uh, particularly just to increase high gut digestibility of feeds, but to a point, to a very, like, there's limits, obviously, how much you want to put it there. And in many cases, we're just far exceeding that. And that's where all these problems arise with performance horses and the amount they're feeding. And I know you. one of the things you want to talk about was like high gut health. And this kind of all wraps itself into it because these people or these horses that are like, well, I have to feed a lot of grain to maintain the weight of my horse. A lot of times when you really start to look at the diet and what the horse is, you know, the workload that the horse is doing, I think a lot of the fact that they can't maintain their weight is from hindgut dysfunction. So it takes up to like six weeks for the hindgut microflora just to a major diet change. And I just don't think people have the timeline to wait to see the change. So the, the fact that they can reduce the grain load on these horses and get them more efficiently digesting the forage to get the most out of that and vastly reduce the amount of grain that's being fed to these horses. Yeah. It's it's to, it's totally doable. It's in the horse's best interest. It's in the people's best interest. It's going to save them money in the long run, and their horses are going to be healthier. It's just a matter of understanding the energetics of it, uh, working with a good nutritionist that knows how to formulate the diet appropriately for the level of work that's happening and ensuring that you do have optimal gut health, that they can assimilate all the nutrients that they're consuming. I chatted with a friend, Hannah Croto, about her Hanoverian gelding in her feeding program, as well as his past gut issues. She is a dressage trainer in southern Maine and has her horse in heavy work. Once she switched to a forage-based diet, a lot of his gut issues resolved. His issues kind of went hand in hand because he has probably chronically had hindgut ulcers his entire life, on and off, and it wasn't really caught until... I got him at eight. They didn't know what the deal with him was. I dealt with it on and off. It took a while for us to figure out what it was the first time. And then maybe a year later, he gets navicular. (laughs) So, you know, hoof health was definitely lacking probably the majority of his life with the lack of gut health. So playing with that kind of stuff and the forage-based diet really helped long-term with actually both issues. I have almost no issue with the ulcers anymore since switching him over. So what did you do to to help his gut or like what do you think helped the most? So I mean I did a lot of different things for him. When we first figured out what was going on with him we tried pretty much every medication under the moon. I have and I keep on hand mesoprostol which most of the time I guess people have to keep their horses on it you know, a small uh, maintenance dose every day, but Leo only gets it here and there if I feel like he's not feeling good type thing. But 
most of the time he's been doing really well. I don't find myself being like, all right, it's spring again. He's got ulcers. Okay, it's fall again. He's got ulcers again. It's more of like, a, hey, bud, like you're having an off day. Let me just give you a small maintenance dose just in case type thing. And, and he's been healthy overall. But I think eliminating the sugars and the starches in the diet were key because it doesn't help his gut microflora with all that sugar to produce healthy bacteria in the gut to then produce a healthy body. He's on free choice hay since I've brought him home with the two, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't call it grain meals a day because it's not grain, it's Timothy pellets and beet pulp and flaxseed mixed in with like Vermont blend. And so obviously he's in really heavy work, right? Have you had to change his diet for calories depending on his workload? So what I end up telling a lot of people as far as like how hard Leo works and how I maintain weight on him is my number one base food is the hay. So the hay is really important. If the protein levels in the hay are too low, then he's going to lose weight, which I, I mean, I have people contact me all the time being like, well, I tried this, but my horse is losing weight. And then you say like, well, what's your hay look like? And they're like, I don't know. I didn't test it. I got hay from a guy when I um, first moved kind of in a pinch like hey I just need, I need to get some hay for my horses and it was decent hay it was you know word of mouth everybody was like oh go get hay from this guy um, the protein levels in it only ended up being 8% the rest of it was decent but it wasn't enough to maintain Leo at the workload that he was doing so I try to keep it above 10% probably some somewhere some sweet spot between 10 and 15% just with how hard he works it doesn't necessarily have to be every horse that's where he gets his most of his nutrients I try not to be like you're losing weight and you need more grain I try to just be like free choice hay but free choice high protein low sugar low starch hay A friend of mine, Maya Chapu, is a hoof care provider in Canada. She talks about meeting Scott and discussing feeding equine athletes with him. One thing that I know that kind of really blew me away about when I first met him and talking to him about nutrition was just this idea that even horses that are doing really high-level exercise don't necessarily need to be eating a ton of grain. Because that was the thing, you know, he was saying, like, well, I have all these race horses and endurance horses that are surviving with, you know, hay. Some of them are on flax, salt, and vitamins, and they're doing just fine, and they're doing, like, 100-mile endurance rides. <laughs> If they can survive all that, the rest of the horses don't need grain, you know? Yeah, and that's definitely something I wanted to talk about was, you know, gut health, obviously for the overall health of the horse, but also the hooves in general, because we know that the feet are kind of a mirror into what's going on health-wise in the horse. <laughs> and that's, I feel like the gut has been this, like, elusive thing to me, because I... <laughs> You know, there's so many different things that people say. People are, you know, to, to make the gut function better. So I don't know if you have any insight into ways to make sure that your horse's gut is functioning well. And if you've noticed, I mean, maybe you haven't, but if you've noticed any correlation between gut health and the feet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right. You, you see the nutrition, the stresses and things that go on in a horse's life come out in their hooves and as you just alluded to and you've seen it lots as a healthcare professional um, and gut health is a huge part of that and 
to say anybody understands it would be a stretch. I mean, when you look at the human side and all the research that's being done on uh, gut health and microflora and just, you know, psychological well-being and just overall health. And then, the you know, we obviously have some research in the horse, but nothing to the extent that they have in humans. But you know there's correlations. You know these correlations in terms of gut health and the horse's behavior, well-being, and overall health are, are intimately involved. And gut health in the horse seems to go wrong in a very high percentage of cases. You just have to look at the statistics of, you know, gastric ulceration would be one of the main ones, even like behind gut dysfunction or the percentage of colic, although colic's a very, very generic term just to mean some kind of gut dysfunction occurred that caused you to call the veterinarian in. But the high instance would indicate we're not doing a great job with feeding our horses. And it's not just what you feed your horse, but how you feed your horse and how you keep your horse. So again, you know, you talk about hindgut health, and it's not just hindgut health, but it's somewhat the mental health of the horse too. Uh, because if the horse is like has a chronic low grade stress all the time, that affects the gut health. You know, it's kind of the one direction going from the brain to the gut. But then you also have the gut going to the brain, where if what you're feeding is disturbing the microbiota uh, in some way, you know, you get dysbiosis or something, that's feeding from the gut to the brain. You may be causing stress in that direction. And we, we certainly don't understand all the interactions, but we do know there are definite interactions between like the ethological needs of the horse and the actual like feedstuffs, chemical nature of the, you know, the chemical breakdown when we look at a lab analysis of what we're feeding that horse. It may be perfect, but then we still see all these problems and it, and it may just be an environmental issue in terms of how the horse is being kept. Just moving a horse from, you know, one herd group to another induces a fair amount of stress, which will you'll see it in the hind gut or just in the digestion of the horse. And then you ultimately end up seeing that come out in the hose. There's a lot of different reasons why that happens. You know, you talk about leaky gut, all the pathogens that you're exposed to come in basically one of two ways, either through your airways or through your gut, assuming you don't have any open cuts. You know, your gut's constantly exposed to this assault of pathogens. And a good, healthy horse that's fed well that in a great environment, it deals with them. But as soon as things start to go off a little bit, a lot of things can go wrong. So any nutrition program has to encompass everything. It's not just like what we're putting in front of the horse. It's the environment the horse is in and how that's ultimately going to impact its behavior, its health. And then that does obviously show up in the house in a large way. Yeah. So it's it's not just about levels of copper, zinc, and it's everything you really need to start considering uh, when you're looking at health, health and nutrition and how they tie together. Yeah. And so what do you usually recommend to support the, the gut in general? And do you have different recommendations for the foregut versus the hindgut? Because I know you were talking a bit about the hindgut. Well, I mean, number one for supporting gut health is to have forage in front of the horse, an appropriate forage, so that it's doing what it wants to do, and that's to eat. I mean, there's been lots of studies looking at horse behavior in terms of, and everybody throws around, they should eat 12 hours a day because that's what horses know how to do. And there's been some very good studies. If you take away forage and stall a horse, and only basically only have six hours to eat their hay, and then they have nothing else to eat, what do they do? They eat the bedding, they eat their own feces, they chew on the wood, they, they do all sorts of crazy things because they want to be eating. So from a gut health standpoint, the very first thing you cover is 
adequate forage for enough hours in the day that they're fulfilling that need because that removes the stress. The horse is doing what it wants to do. It remains relatively calm. There's lots to do from, like, you know, look at Mad Barner from the additive side. There's lots of things we can add in in terms of probiotics, yeast, prebiotics, although prebiotics, I think, get a little overblown in the horse uh, because basically forage is a prebiotic. It's, you know, it's feeding the hindgut. Uh, it's just making sure you have the right feedstuffs for the horse to optimize hindgut to digestion is ultimately the best prebiotic you can give a horse. In terms of for overall gut health, adequate forage at the end of the day and ensuring that you're not feeding a lot of excess starch or sugars to the horse that it can't digest, but it's going to disturb the microbiota of the ecosystem of the gut. And the other big one, actually, that I guess I'll bring up now is um, that we don't talk about is protein. So, again, this is kind of going off topic a little bit. We talk so much about sugars and starches. Protein only really gets talked about in terms of muscle building or putting a top line on a horse, and more seems to be better. But we forget about the impact protein has when it reaches the hindgut and there's too much of it. And it can really wreak havoc in the hindgut. We see a lot of diets where a lot of excess protein is being fed and it may not show up immediately as a negative impact, but over time, and certainly the impact it has on the shifting microbial population and the absorption of the, the byproducts are, of that fermentation into the horse can definitely have negative impacts on hoof health and just the overall health of the horse. And, we really like. I don't really hear anybody talking about it. It is something we should be considering because there are a lot of cases where we are feeding sets of protein that is not enzymatically degraded in the small intestine and it hits the hindgut and does cause significant alterations in basically your fermentation end products in the hindgut. Yeah, I'm no, that makes sense. More tangents here. <laughs> no, it totally no, it totally makes sense. And I, you know, I was thinking about my own horse who will go through bouts of mild colitis, like very mild, um, ever since he had IV antibiotics a while ago after stepping on a nail, he'll just have gut issues every so often that he never had before that. And I've tried a bunch of different things. I mean, I board, so I only have so much control over when they're feeding the forage and, you know, how often that is happening. But I've tried, you know, different kinds of probiotics and like you were saying like the prebiotics and yeast and some you know dr kellen would say they need you know they really should only get probiotics for a time and it should just it should be like billions and billions of the you know live active bacteria and so i feel like i just am a little lost if there's like anything in terms of something that you can feed that's actually going to help that you know the gut be healthier other than is is it just making sure they have hay all the time that's going to be the best bet well well yeah for sure that's the best bet number one but number two is the quality of the hay like some of the hay gets to be almost like straw and you essentially are starving the hindgut bacteria so everybody's seen a horse with hay belly right and this is just hay that it's too indigestible there's too much non-digestible material passing through and again, you, you go to the uh, metabolic horse world and you're like, well, that's kind of ideal because you don't want to get a lot of nutrients out of it. But we're, we're feeding the bacteria in the hindgut too. And if you starve them, that causes issues as well. So, you, you know, just feeding forage isn't necessarily going to achieve what you want to achieve. So you, you kind of listed off a few things. And I think we talked about it in the last episode, this whole idea of label dressing that happens in the commercial market space. 
and Dr. Callum's comments about billions and billions. And here's what happens is there's a ton of products out there where they're directed at gut health because, I mean, we're talking about this because it's an issue that's prevalent in the horse industry. Therefore, there's products out there to address this issue. But there's a bunch of them out there, the label dressing. And when you start talking millions and billions, your scope is, you know, is 100 billion or, or 100 million and 100 billion. Is that really that big of a difference? Well, yeah, it's a huge difference. And you do need to feed billions and billions. So when it comes to, like, yeast is a good one because there's a lot of research in horses with yeast, live organism feeding that this, you know, basically 30 billion CFUs per day is kind of the bottom, and then 50 billion CFUs per day is the optimal response that they've achieved through research. But then you go look at all the products that are out there, and very, very few actually hit that 50, 30 to 50 billion CFUs per day mark. So, you know, when you, you know, people are like, well, I treat my horse with antibiotics, we, we've disturbed the microflora, and I can't seem to get it back to the way it was. I've heard yeast is good. I tried this, you know, tried one to five different products, and nothing really quite worked. You really need to go look and see, like, how much was I feeding? Was it the appropriate amount? Was the was it a strain that we know has beneficial impacts? Um, and then you move into the world of probiotics. I mean, yeast technically is a probiotic. I, for some reason in my head, when I say probiotic, I always think bacteria. You know, these lactobacillus and this real bacteria that we feed. And again, those do need to be up in the billions to really have an effect. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So we, we talked about the hindgut for bacteria, but there's, and there's obviously a lot of bacteria that live in the hindgut. And when you feed probiotics, it's really a game of survival. Like, yes, some are going to die in the stomach. Yes, some are going to die in the small intestine. And then hopefully the vast majority reach the hindgut if that's where your mode of action is that you want it to occur. But again, it's you need enough numbers in there to impact the, not just the, like the microbiology of the gut itself, but also the animal itself. And there's interactions. There's lots of information out there, but there's still, again, there's just so much we don't know about the different interactions between the bacteria and then the interactions between the bacteria and the host being the horse in these cases. But there are some strains that are pretty well defined and we know they have this impact, but again, it does have to be at the correct feeding rate. And, and that's hard for the individual consumer to know, like, okay, it's 20 billion, 100 billion, 50 billion of, you know, these different, and there's so many different strains, which one's doing the right thing. And I guess that's where you just kind of go to, you need a really reputable supplier that you know is at least giving you the best that they know how, at that time they can do that is going to give you a positive impact. Because again, there are there's just a, there's so many products in the marketplace that they're just simply not putting enough in there. It's they're there to market a product. They put the name on the label just to get the ability to market it and say, well, it's in here, right? But it's not going to have a physiological impact. Much to Dr. Kellum's comment that yes, you need these, you need to have the right amount going into the horse. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, at least so there are some good studies though about gut health for horses. It sounded like. You were referencing? Yeah, well, there's been a fair bit, of, like on the yeast side again, there's been a fair bit of work there the, out of Europe, actually. And a few different companies, you know, sponsored the primary manufacturers of yeast. And in general, they've gotten kind of the same results, which give you, gives you confidence that, uh, you know, the CFU count that they're using, uh, the viability of their strains is good. And you're like, okay, well, this seems to be in the wheelhouse of where we need to be. Um, 
it's, yeah, I'm going to go off on a tangent here a little bit it could be because it's my alma mater, Guelph. Dr. Scott Weiss done actually a fair bit of work in horses with probiotics. And he actually has a, ne- a bit of a negative view on it because some of the, a bunch of the strains they isolated and fed to foals or different animals, they got actually negative health outcomes from them. But the tack they took was to isolate bacteria that were native to the horse's hindgut. And then they just, you know, they grow it up and they feed it back. And but they did the outcome they were hoping for, I guess. They expected to see a positive health outcome and it didn't happen. And so they were like, well, you know, maybe this isn't everything it's touted to be. And I get asked this question a lot. They're like, well, this, you know, if you're feeding this bacteria and it's not native to the horse's gut, you know, is that a good thing to do? I think it is, actually, because whatever caused the natural microflora in that horse's gut to falter and change, I don't think just by adding back that same species, you can expect it to thrive. By adding in a species that may be foreign, that has specific properties that may inhibit pathogenic bacteria, that you then get these, you get these nice positive responses. In regards to experiences with gut issues, I talked with Kaylee Tanzi, a friend of mine who also happens to be a hoof care client. I have been trimming her navicular slash ringbone diagnosed horse for about a year now. She has been through a lot with his feet as well as his gut, and I talked to her about some of the steps she took to remedy the gut issues he was having. So... I don't know if you have any thoughts on your gut issues that you had with chili and what you've done to help it. Well, I think it's a combination of a couple of things because I kind of threw the kitchen sink at him because he always had that free fecal water. I remember going to visit him way up in New Hampshire in the middle of winter and if he would like overheat, he would have diarrhea on his legs and it was too cold to bathe him and it was horrific. So I was there for like an hour cleaning his like baby wipes Oh my God, it was so bad. Basically, I was just at the barn every single day washing his leg. And he also had a lot of gas issues. So we had a couple bouts of gas colic on really hot days. So it was basically just me going every single day, trying to cool him down um, and wash off his legs with diarrhea and gut upset. And I was really nervous about him colicking again. And I knew it was really important because he did so well in the unlimited forage that that was something that I really wanted for him to have long term. So I actually found a barn that could allow me to do that. And during that time, I was starting to get educated about nutrition and really just learning what was best for my horse and also I was exploring some hoof health and how to feed the hoof better. So I changed up a lot of the diet. I stopped feeding commercial grain. I started mineral balancing to the average hay for my region. Um, I added a high quality probiotic and started learning what that actually meant. I learned that the probiotic I was using for years actually the CFU count was under 1 billion. It was actually in the low millions. So the likelihood that it was reaching his gut was absolutely none. So I ended up finding a product that had several strains and at least 1 billion CFU, at least double digits I was always looking for. I found that that was really helpful um, in just the mineral balancing and, and it all seemed to really make a big difference. As I said before, I hear so many that say alfalfa is safe for feet because it's low in sugar and starch. And yet, as a hoof care provider, I see so many horses that become foot sore with even a few bites of alfalfa. Scott talks a little bit about why this might be. 
and you had mentioned this a little bit actually when you were talking about equine athletes, but a little bit about alfalfa in the equine diet. I'm a little bit hesitant whenever I think about alfalfa because I've seen horses that become foot sore on it. And I know you had briefly mentioned it when you talked about equine athletes, but I wanted to know your thoughts on alfalfa for horses and its effect on the feet, if you had any input on that. Well, it's an interesting question because I think there's still, again, I think I, everything I say, there's a lot of unknowns, but there's certainly, a, I think, clues to what, what some issues are. With alfalfa, metabolic horses, I, whether they seem sensitive to it or not, I've just been like, just cut it out. Not to the point where, you know, a supplement may have a little bit of alfalfa, but you're only feeding 200 grams. Like, that's fine. I, I don't think that's going to cause an issue. But... If it's a metabolic horse, generally, like I've seen enough cases where, yeah, they are, and I'm sure you have as well, where just like even a flake of alfalfa seems to create some major issues with the hooves. And so why take the risk? When you move up to the athletic horse or certainly lactating mares, there's definitely a place for alfalfa because it boosts the protein and gives lots of calcium for a lactating mare. So, you know, I think there's certainly a place to put it into the diet, but again, it's going to be in limited amounts. The thing that's interesting, what I always see people arguing about is I'll see a comment, you know, on Facebook or whatever that they feed alfalfa because it's low in sugar and starch and it should be fine for their metabolic horses. And what do you think might be then the reason that we see so many foot sore horses if they're eating alfalfa, if it's low in sugar and starch? Yeah, for sure it's low in sugar and starch. And, you know, I, we touched on this already. Like, I know we were talking about gut health, and I talked about protein, and this part we overlook about this excess protein hitting the hind gut. And the other thing to bring into this conversation, yeah, it's low in sugar and starch. The horse is a hind gut fermenter, and there is a lot of non-enzymatically degraded carbohydrates in alfalfa. And so I guess to put that in very simple terms, it means when those carbohydrates hit the hind gut, they're going to rapidly ferment. And that generally drives a fermentation profile that produces propionate. <laughs> put this in context, that propionate turns into glucose. So it's absorbed, the liver gets it it turns it into glucose, which if you do that enough, it's going to generate an insulin response. Now, because it's, it has to go through this whole pathway, you don't get the same kind of insulin response you do to a sugar meal, like a high sugar meal. It's not like you get this spike in insulin. But a lot of these horses, it's like this just chronic, low-grade, elevated insulin level that's causing all these problems. And if you're feeding this alfalfa, which is just chronically producing glucose, then it's definitely a consideration as to why alfalfa may be an issue. Then you can kind of go into also, well, there's a lot of protein in alfalfa. It tends to be very high in protein. And a lot of that protein is going to hit the hindgut again. So start talking about dysbiosis and hindgut fermentations that may be yielding end products that could have negative consequences on circulation to the hoof or just general hoof health. And I think those are probably the two biggest areas of why these metabolic horses have issues with alfalfa is the protein content and then also the amount of non-enzymatically degraded carbohydrates that are in alfalfa. So they look great on paper when you're talking about low NSC and that is the focus obviously with metabolic horses feed low NSC hay. But the reality is the Alfalfa is really not that great of a alternative for metabolic horses. And I, and I think those are two reasons why, again, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to kind of isolate down what it exactly is the issue. But it's probably, honestly, it's probably a combination of those two things that are leading to the issues with feeding alfalfa. 
Another good friend and client, Danalee Swanson, runs a boarding barn of 14 horses in southern New Hampshire. What I love about their property is they have a mineral-balanced feed program as part of their board, so owners don't have to worry about supplementing minerals. She talks a little bit about some issues she had when introducing alfalfa into the feeding program. So we have, I think, six off-track thoroughbreds or thoroughbreds, one of them never actually raced. And we feed minerals with a Timothy pellet base and some of our hardy, harder keepers are on the Triple Crown Senior and especially our picky old eaters. Like we have like a 26 year old standard bread who is super picky to begin with. But anyways, and when was it? I think it was this spring. I decided to do a 50-50 handmade blend of Timothy pellets and alfalfa pellets because we were having some horses that were struggling to keep weight on. And instead of just pumping them up with more Timothy pellets, because you could kind of tell that they weren't super into the Timothy pellets. And instead of adding the senior when they really didn't need the senior, I was like, why don't we just try some alfalfa pellets and so i did this 50 50 blend you know hand mixed in this big giant trash bin and switched everybody onto it and within three weeks i had three horses go totally foot sore and the only contributing factor was it was like literally within a day of each other like one went foot sore the next one went foot sore and then the other one went foot sore. And the first one that I noticed was an easy keeper horse. He's like a quarter horse, you know, fat pony. And within, I mean, it was like overnight that we took him off the alfalfa because I was like, what could have happened? And so I said, don't give him any more alfalfa. Just open up a bag of Timothy pellets and feed him the Timothy pellets. And within, I would say 48 hours, he was no longer foot sore and I was like, what is that? (laughs) Could that even really happen? And so same thing. I was like, all right, well, if the other two are still foot sore, pull everybody off the alfalfa. And within 48 hours of pulling the alfalfa out of their feed, everybody was back to, you know, their normal hoof sensitivity or whatever you want to call it. So I, from this point on, I'm like, well, I'm not really going to, I don't think I'm going to do that again because I can't, you know, with 14 horses on the property, I can't have just randomly horses getting foot sore for no reason. And then I also have noticed just regarding to alfalfa in general, we have one horse that was on alfalfa cubes and along with Timothy pellets and senior grain to, you know, help his weight stay up. I noticed that once his owner pulled him off of the alfalfa cubes because she just didn't order more for a week, he actually gained weight quicker. And I don't know if that's just a coincidence or <laughs> or what, but he has not been on alfalfa since and he's actually keeping his weight better. So those are just like firsthand, like that's really weird that you pull the alfalfa out and body condition changes and their foot soreness went away. Now, I want to clarify, alfalfa is not bad. Many horses do great on alfalfa. I just see some issues that come up in horses that already have hoof sensitivities. So I want to share that so that people are aware of what might happen in some horses. 
Yeah, and this might be off topic, but have you heard of or ever used the fermented alfalfa, the the chaff hay? I don't know if that's actually a brand. I don't even know if it's just in the States because it's fermented. It's supposedly great for their gut and it's safe for... I, I've never used it, but they say it's safe for feet. I don't. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Well, there's certainly... Um... Like it's not just alfalfa, they'll ferment grass too. So, I mean, in the ruminant world, you term that haylage, which just means it's been ensiled, which is you harvest it wet, you ferment it in a storage somewhere with a lack of oxygen. And it, what happens is the bacteria then use all the sugars and whatnot in that forage and turn it into BFAs, which is essentially what happens in the hind of the horses. You get a slightly, you obviously get a different BFA profile in haylage. And so there is merit to what they're saying that it's much safer to feed because if your concern is sugar in hay, fermenting it gets rid of all the sugar because the bacteria burn it up to produce their acid byproduct is what actually preserves the hay or alfalfa. So then it becomes a safe product to feed. Now, this is where you come into some of the dynamics of nothing is as simple as it seems because a lot of the chaff or the fermented feeds are much less mature when they're harvested. And so if you fed that free choice, the caloric intake of the horse would be could be quite high. And we, we can bring this full circle right back to the performance horse, where this may be a great option for the performance horse. Use the ability to take forage relatively immaturely, reduce the sugar content, but still have a very high energy content for the horse. Now that's great for the performance horse, that's not so great for your metabolic course. Yeah, the sugars are gone, but the energy content may be too high for them. And so again, you know, anytime you talk about nutrition, it's never as simple as, oh, it's just the sugar content we need to look at. If you have chronically excessive caloric intake in a horse, you're going to have ongoing problems with a metabolic course. Or that's how you're going to lead to a metabolic course is this chronic excessive caloric intake. And if the chaff hay or the haylage, whatever you want to call it, is too good for what the horse is doing, that it's you know exceeding its energy requirements for too long of a period of time, that's eventually going to lead to problems. So it really comes back to balance. It, it can be a great feedstuff for metabolic horses in the sense that, yes, it's been fermented, so you don't have to worry about the sugars, but now you just have to make sure the caloric intake isn't too high on an ongoing basis because eventually that will lead to problems too. Yeah. I think that's actually the main points I wanted to touch on. I don't know if you had any closing advice for a horse owner that's interested in nutrition. Stay, stay on Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's my, no, I, I, I joke. It's, uh, I mean, Google's great. The amount of information that out there is fantastic that people have such ready access to it. it. It's a hard thing to kind of summarize, but if, I guess from a nutrition standpoint and feeding your horse, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I think you just you go from the old school to people are like, well, I just throw my horse on pasture, give him a bit of salt, and he was fine. And actually, that's probably the lesser of two evils. Keep it super simple. And then to the opposite end, where they're feeding all kinds of crazy things. And if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And really, just keep it simple. It's great that people want to learn about nutrition, and I absolutely encourage them to do it. But unless the help of experts, honestly, it's worth the money or the time or the effort to do it. Because kind of as we talked about in this podcast, there it's never black and white. 
it's, you know, we can't just put things in boxes. So there's a lot of information to integrate and work through and it make a really great diet, but at the same time, it is actually very basic and simple. It's just stick to the sound principles, you know, lots of cores, keep the horse happy, eating all the time and control the caloric intake and good minerals and vitamins. And I think that's what it is. Yeah, um, perfect. I think this is all great. This is all stuff that I get asked about all the time. And obviously I don't really know. So um, it's good to hear it from someone who has all the information, you know, has done the research and <laughs> looked into all of it. So thank you so much for being willing to do this again. Yeah, no problem. Well, again, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> Thanks. It's good talking to you again. You too. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.